Well, friends, we're turning to the Word of God. It's been a great joy for myself and my wife, uh, Libby, and my youngest of three kids, Ruby, to become a part of the five o'clock service uh, here at St Andrews. And it, it's been really good for me to be a, a punter in the pews just like you. And now I get to see what it looks like from up here. But Revelation chapter 5 is where we're at today. And I bring you good news. Good news. Because scientists have discovered a gas that enables them to send electrical impulses at a speed faster than light. And they argue that with this funky gas, now to be fair they use a slightly more scientific term, but with this funky gas they can send messages to the future and back again all in the same moment. How good would that be? To be able to get a message from the future and know how it all ends. Forget me trying to raise money for youth works. Forget our Vision 2020 building fund. We'd have Monday night's lotto numbers today. You would pass every exam because you would have the questions before they even got written. You would avoid every car accident because you would see it coming. If you knew the future, if you knew how it all ended, then you would have an unshakable confidence through all the seasons of life. Well, we're working through as a church the book of Revelation. It's my great privilege to be preaching to you today. Last week with Stu, we looked at chapter 4 of Revelation. Today, chapter 5, and together those two chapters lift the veil. That's what Revelation means, to lift the veil. And in these chapters, the veil is lifted on what is going on in heaven right now. Right now and forever. This is how it all ends. The Apostle John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos in the late 1st century AD. Perhaps even in sight of troop ships sailing from Rome to the coast of Asia Minor to begin the first of what would become a violent empire-wide persecution of Christians. John was given by God a vision of the present and the future. It's a truth that is too big for words. So John was given a vision, not a video, a vision that captures what will happen on earth between now and the return of Jesus, that's chapters 6 through 22, as well as what is happening in heaven right now, chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4, if you were here last week, we saw the heavenly host praising God in song because he is the creator of all things. They said, they sang, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the first of God's two great acts that echo into eternity. He made everything. He sustains everything. In chapter 5, as John observes heaven, he sees the second of God's great acts. And this second great act of God's revolves around three things that John said he did in response to this vision. Verse 4, I wept. Verse 6, I saw. Verse 11, I heard. Those three words, wept, saw, 
and heard, they more or less correspond to the three movements of this second great act of God's. And we're going to pick up the action in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. God the Father is on the throne and in his hand is a scroll which represents the unfolding future of the world. If this scroll is not able to be opened, then the future blessings of God will not come to pass. Now remember, John's first readers were in the grip of persecution for their faith. Then as now, Christians were being killed for their trust in Jesus. If this scroll can't be opened, then the future, including God's blessings of a new heaven and a new earth, they will not come to pass. Now it's symbolic language as is the scroll, but unless someone is found worthy to open the scroll and its seals, the world will be stuck in Groundhog Day. There will only and forever be persecution and sufferings and injustice and death and oppression for God's people and the poor. Satan will win the day. There will be no end to tragedies, injustices, wars and disasters in the world. So to avoid this groundhog day of the same terrors happening day after day after day and forever without end, this symbolic scroll must be symbolically opened so that God's future blessings can come to pass. John knows this. And because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll, verse 4, he wept. He wept and wept because he realised he has no hope. He has no future worth looking forward to. Sin and death will have the last word. But, but, then he's told in verse 5, Do not weep. See, an angel said, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. Well, of course, it's going to be a lion. In the symbolic world of Jewish apocalyptic writing, and that's the genre we've got here in Revelation, a, a coded symbolic writing that paints grand pictures and challenges our minds to grapple with things that are almost too big for words. Well, of course, you're going to choose the king of the jungle to represent the one who has triumphed over all evil. It's got to be a lion. So John looks Verse 6, and he sees the Lion of Judah, that is, a conquering king descended from the Israelite tribe of Judah. But this Lion is not a triumphant king of the jungle. It's a lamb looking as if it had been slain. That's what is standing in the centre of heaven's throne. But this slaughtered lamb has triumphed, yet he looks like he's died. We'll read from verse 6 now. 
Continuing with verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Right in the middle of heaven is the root of David, a descendant of the great King David who reigned 1000 BC in Jerusalem. A pathetic lamb that looks like it could die at any moment. However, this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Seven is the number of perfection, a horn is the symbol of power, and an eye represents knowledge. So this pathetic-looking lamb with seven horns and seven eyes is, in fact, all-powerful. He is the supreme and sovereign ruler over all things, and he possesses God's perfect knowledge. This lamb is at once crucified and powerful, and he occupies centre stage in heaven. In his vision, John sees Jesus Christ right at the centre of heaven. Now, this is why we make such a big deal about Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. These two titles remind us that it's not just heaven that makes a big deal about Jesus, but the Bible also makes a big deal about Jesus. I want to show you, it's very cool, it's even cooler than Santo and his boy band cranking out April Sun in Cuba during the break. Uh, here it is. The Bible starts with, uh, in the Garden of Eden with God having made the world and everything in it and made it perfect, he's now sustaining it. This is, remember, the first reason for all of heaven to praise God, his first great act of creation. But after the fall and the entrance of sin into the world, God promised that through one of Eve's descendants, he would deal forever with sin and death and the devil. Central to God's plans for the world will be someone born to a woman. Then in time, God promised Abraham that it would be through him and his descendants, the Israelites, that blessing would come to the whole world. So we're starting to narrow down the identity of who this central figure is going to be. Abraham's grandson had 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 predicted that God's saviour would come from the tribe of Judah. So we're narrowing down the range of possible people who could be God's promised saviour, the one who would deal forever with sin and death and the devil. As we read through the Old Testament, we find this servant of God, this rescuer, saviour figure, would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, if you're taking notes, a descendant of King David, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, that his birth would be in extraordinary circumstances to a young woman, 
Isaiah 7, that he would do tremendous miracles, including, but not limited to, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, causing the lame to walk, giving mothers back their dead children. Uh, We also know that he would be crucified. The range of people who can tick all these boxes is becoming infinitesimally small among the world's population. And we also know that he's going to rise from the dead. Does this remind you of anyone? The whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who would be descended from King David in the Israelite tribe of Judah, who would be slain for us, yet rise in exalted victory. Jesus is the Lamb who stands at the centre of history. And John sees him take the scroll. Don't take your photo yet, there's more to go on the screen. John sees Jesus Take the scroll. It's because of his atoning death and victorious resurrection that Jesus is worthy to take the scroll from God the Father and open it. In other words, it's because of Jesus' death on the cross that you can know that sin and death and the devil have been defeated. We now know who wins. And it's because of his resurrection we can know that the future blessings of God's good and perfect heaven will come to pass. In fact, the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, the New Testament, spells out the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection. And when we get to the last... Yes, take the photo now. When we get to the last chapters of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, we come not to a garden, but to a city, the New Jerusalem where all of creation has been repaired, restored, recreated, made whole and right and new again. But that can only happen because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Sin has been dealt with. Death has been defeated. God's second great act is not creation but recreation. Redemption, salvation, and it was secured for you, obtained for you at the cross. In chapter 4 of Revelation, we saw this last week with Stu, the elders of heaven were singing that God is worthy because of his act of creation. But here in chapter 5, the exact same elders are singing that Jesus is worthy because of his act of salvation. Now there is a new song in heaven because God has done a new thing. So let's continue through John's vision uh, from verse 11. Continuing with verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. So remember back in chapter 4, it was the Lord God who was declared in heavenly song as worthy to receive glory, honour, power and praise. Now in chapter 5, it's Jesus who is declared in song to be worthy of all glory, honour, power and praise. The same heavenly host who in chapter 4 who were praising God for his act of creation are now praising him for his act of recreation. As momentous 
as the creation of the universe was, as big as the bang was, it is no greater than the slaying of Jesus on the cross, which was, verse 9, him purchasing people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I was writing this part of my sermon at the Youth Works offices down in the National Park at, um, on the banks of the Hacking River and it was a sparkling autumn day and I, I looked up from my screen and I looked through the, the green of the Aussie gum trees across onto the blue, the deep blue of the river and at that moment the sky was lit up with the electric pink of sunset and I just went, wow, wow. I'm sure you have your own moments of experiencing the breathtaking beauty of creation. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that we need to see Jesus' death and resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins, our new status as a kingdom of priests of God. We need to see those things in the same way. In fact, all of history was leading up to that moment on a hill overlooking the garbage dump of Jerusalem. This is not an ethnic thing, not a political thing, not a geographic thing. The people affected by this good news are from every tribe and nation and people. This is a global thing and all of creation is caught up in it. If your trust is in Jesus, then you are caught up in God's grand plans for the future because, as Heaven's Song goes on, you have been made into a kingdom and priests to serve God. We know that we're caught up in God's plans for the future because the lamb that was slain, Jesus, because his death has defeated all those forces and powers that stand opposed to God's good and perfect plans and he is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to unlock and oversee the unfolding of history. But two questions come to mind. Question number one, how do you know if you're a Christian? And therefore part of God's good and perfect future. And second question, once you work out you're a Christian, well, what are you supposed to do with it? How do you know if you're a Christian? Well, is this your song? Does hearing, make, hearing this make you think, yes, Yes, Jesus, you stand at the centre of history, the centre of heaven, the centre of my life, and you make me want to sing. I know that you died for me, that you love me, that I'm going to be with you forever, and I cannot wait. I know now how it all ends. I know who wins, and I know that I am his. If words like that don't bubble around inside your head, then you'll either want to make very sure that Jesus is not in charge of eternity or you want to talk to someone about him and get sure. A great way to do that is to hook into the Life of Jesus course that kicks off this Wednesday. But if you have worked out that your trust is in Jesus, that you're on his side, and that means all of eternity is secure for you, well, what are you supposed to be doing in this time of tension, this time of having now the sure and certain promise of eternal life, but not yet experiencing all its blessings in full? How are you supposed to live in this now but not yet time before the Lion of Judah returns? 
in the song of verse 9, we're told that when Jesus died, he purchased us for God, and verse 10, he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. We are priests. Where did priests in the Old Testament do their priestly thing? It was in the temple, in the very presence of God. The Bible says that our bodies are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit. We saw in chapter 1 from Revelation that Jesus walks among the seven lampstands, which is apocalyptic imagery explaining that Jesus is with his people now. We are to live our whole lives in the presence of God. What that means is there is no distinction between the sacred and the secular, between the stuff we do for God over here and the stuff we do for ourselves over there. No, everything is to be done to the praise of God so that our lives fit in, align with and get ready for what is going on right now in heaven because that's where you're going. John has wept, John has looked and finally... Verse 13, John heard. Continuing with verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We don't need any funky gas to know the future. It's laid out right here for us. It ends with everything in the universe singing praises to God the Father and to Jesus the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of Judah. That is how it ends. With Jesus Christ, centre stage, bearing the cost of your sin in his wounds, triumphant, receiving praise and honour and glory and power. That is how it ends, friends. When you know what's coming in the future, you prepare for it. So if that's who wins, and that's how it ends... Logically, the question to ask is, if the Lamb, Jesus, who is at the centre of the throne of heaven, if he has taken centre stage there, and we've seen he's got centre stage in the Bible, so the question becomes, does he have centre stage in your life? When you are making your decisions, whatever they are, from the sublime through the, the, to the ridiculous, is your overriding question, what's in it for me? Or do you ask, what will bring the most credit and glory to God rather than to me? Our time is almost gone. But there's one thing going on in this vision of heaven that I skipped over. Around the throne of heaven where God the Father and God the Son are seated, there are the four living creatures and the 24 elders bowing down and acknowledging that supreme authority and power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise they all belong to God and to God alone forever and ever. Each one of them has a harp and what John sees as verse 8, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Right in the centre of the action of heaven are the prayers of the saints. The saints are all those who put their trust in Jesus. The saints are not just dead people who have churches named after them. 
A saint is anyone who has Jesus at the centre of their life. And I trust that includes you. And that means your prayers are right in the centre of the action in heaven. Prayer is the hidden character and power of the Christian life. Prayer can seem so insignificant and impotent on earth. But your prayers are so precious and important in heaven. Prayer is one of the most fundamental ways you can express your trust in God. If you grasp that God himself takes your prayers so seriously as to have them held right there in the centre of heaven before his throne, then you will know that one of the most significant, powerful, important and eternal things you can do is pray. Even when all hope seems lost, get on your knees and pray. Because you know the king of the world. And it's not Leonardo DiCaprio at the front of a boat. And it's not you. And it's not the person who writes your paycheck. It is Jesus. And he invites you to turn to him in every sphere of life. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We've seen a glimpse into the reality of heaven and eternity and we know who's in charge. We know how it ends. We know who wins and we know whose we are. I hope that fills you with a sure hope and a rock-solid confidence as you face the coming week and the challenges that are before you this year. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we join with the hosts of heaven in declaring that your Son, the Lord Jesus, is worthy to command the future. We are so thankful that he died for us and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve you forever. We acknowledge that you are worthy to receive all authority and power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise forever and ever. Please help our lives to express this truth in every minute of every day. We ask this in the name of the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lord Jesus. Amen.